You right. are live. We are live. Home yeah. Lab Show, episode number eight. Woo! Exciting. Yay. Almost there to 10. Almost there to 10. This is uh, Tom Lawrence, and we have with us Jay LaCroix and Alex Kretschmar. Hello. All right. We're going to talk about something really complicated to make your life easier. <laughs> That's how I look at it. Well, not a bad way to put it, actually. Um, yeah. Especially considering one of the first points that uh, we're considering bringing up is uh, not to over-architect something, but I think we all kind of do that, don't we? Isn't Home Lab kind of over-architecting in and of itself, in a way? We wouldn't do that. Just, no, just, a, little. Do that. just a little. I mean, that's job security, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think it is. All right. I don't, you know, I don't, are we live on YouTube? Because yes. I, Okay, interesting. Yep. There yep. it is. It just took a second. It's catching up. <laughs> it is catching up. So, yeah, the whole idea, I mean, automation is a really big part of what we wanted to talk about today. It's almost like disaster recovery, but I'm kind of hesitant to call it that because that's more of like an enterprise thing. Although you can argue that if your significant other is upset that something is down, then you might want to get that up and running pretty quickly. Or maybe you're practicing for, you know, stuff you want to roll out at an actual company, in which case you could use whatever term fits. But automation is mostly um, on our topic list today. There's different, obviously different technologies that you can use. There's different use cases for why you might want to automate things, why it just might be a bother and you might not even want to do that. So um, that's basically what we're going to talk about today. And then that'll help us get to um, the future where we could talk about in-depth things or any one thing uh, more in-depth. I think we're getting to the point where we're running out of the um, high-level stuff to talk high about. High-level stuff. And I think an important high-level concept of the automation is the concept should be your data is really important, but the servers are essentially ephemeral. You can destroy them. You can rebuild them. They don't matter if uh, something goes wrong. Let's say you're a pipeline company and there's a major attack and you need to rebuild it. You should have an automation script that just kicks it all back off and rebuilds it all. <laughs> yeah, you guys are all right up there in the north. I had to queue for 20 minutes to get gas the other day. <laughs> yeah, um, I heard it's bad down there. I see people throwing that in the comments because it's uh, topical here in May of 2021. Um, but it's still the same concept. These are ways you... When something goes wrong, if a server is infected, if a server has a problem uh, because of an attack, is an example, not just a server failure. You know, you should always have backups of your data, but you should be able yep. to just run a script, kick off a deploy script. And Jay's dove deep into this before with the way he uh, uses Ansible Pull uh, to do deployments. Uh, you pull it and just with a few parameters passed to it, you can rebuild that particular system and then copy your data or remount the shares where the data is located to get the server up and running again. Absolutely. And one question to ask yourself, if you, you know, you run a home lab, you have some cool apps running on there and something goes down conceivably. Um, I don't wish that on anyone, obviously, but how hard are you, are you willing to work to get it up and running? I mean, if you don't have any automation at all and or backups, I mean, you should definitely have backups. But if it's spent, if you spent like four hours setting up that server, well, you're going to have to spend four hours to set it up again if it completely breaks. But not everyone has four hours, right? I mean, a lot of us were really busy. We, we could probably spare 15, 20 minutes a day if it's super busy. And then eventually that server goes down and we don't even have the time to bring it back up. So automation, uh, like Tom mentioned, is, you know, hopefully automatic. It just self-heals. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. Getting there is the challenge, though. Um, I would love it if we could just press a button and it's auto healing, but you got to architect that kind of thing. And, and architecting things is what we do in Home Lab. We're either doing this because we, we enjoy it. Maybe we want that certification. So we want to practice with whatever our company is using for this kind of thing. Um, so, you know, just ask yourself, how much time are you willing to spend rebuilding it? And automation might be the key because you could basically automate, well, essentially everything about your servers to where ultimately you could delete them on purpose. Um, I'm sure you guys have heard of the chaos monkey, but for those that haven't, I believe it was Netflix. They had a chaos monkey. I believe, I don't know if it's a script or a server. I'm sketchy on that part. That would just randomly delete stuff and, and kill services just to see how well it's self-healing. Now that's going to be way beyond the scope of anything we could talk about today. 
But ultimately, if you could get to that point where you could just delete something um, impulsively and nothing goes wrong, something spins right back up again, or worst case scenario, you have to just run a script and it comes back up, um, still fine. That's uh, one of the goals that as when it comes to home lab that we might want to consider trying to reach. All right. So here's how I think about automation. And it, mm -hmm. it's not disaster recovery as, as you seem to be suggesting. That's one use case. Right. But honestly, it's probably a rarity. The way I see yeah. automation is that it is capturing knowledge. It's capturing operationalizational knowledge, if that's even mm -hmm. a word. It's capturing the architect's knowledge of what they think the system looks like at any given point in time. But also, it's, um, it's a way of declaring... You know, on this day in history, uh, on this day in history, this is the way things were. You know, this is how we designed things. And when we deployed version X of our application, it looked like this, you know. Um, and without putting things into automate into automation, uh, you, you just don't really have that kind of ability to be able to wind things back and figure out, what change might have introduced extra latency right at some step in your application and stuff like that so for me it's it's very much non-optional automating things now i mean you could say if i do this task once every nine months and it takes me five minutes manually there isn't a case for that but right. if i leave the organization or i get hit by a bus or i just plain forget what i was doing nine months ago which is Highly likely, let's be fair. Um, if it's in Ansible or some other automation system, I don't have to really think about it. I just have to run the playbook and I'm I'm good to go. And I know that because it's been working for the last nine months, it's probably going to just work again. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's that's a really good uh, synopsis of uh, a very good use case of probably the majority reason why we want to do things like this. Now, disaster recovery, I agree, it's not that but it's kind of an element in some ways. It's sometimes when you talk about automation, you're by association, you talk about some of the things that are part of a disaster recovery plan. And we're not going to go over disaster recovery in general, because it's a, you know, obviously an enterprise topic. And some of these things bleed over to the enterprise. I think it's a personal thing too, because it depends on the individual. If it's a single person living by themselves, they have one server, and they don't mind rebuilding it once in a while. And if it goes down, they really don't care because, yeah, they like it, but it's not like a critical piece of infrastructure. They might make an argument why, you know, if they're not interested in configuration management, why they might not want to do that. I would argue they should, just like you said, um, Alex, that it, it's self-documenting. It, it's a point in time. Yeah. It makes it easier the next time because especially when you you know have something running for six months and then it breaks, you have no documentation, you have no automation. You have to re-Google everything again that you did the very first day. But if you don't mind that, depending on what you're into or you know how it goes, but then perhaps you do want things to be available. I think that's a goal that everyone should strive to. So I completely agree. You should do that if you can. Um, then there's a challenge of over-architecting something. Um, I think that's what you alluded to. If um, you know you have a server that takes four hours to stand up, and you automate it, it takes five minutes, but it took you you know weeks and months to build it, you could argue that you're spending much more time with the automation solution than it would be to manually build it. Um, on, the, that, on that one occasion, yes, but I, yeah. I I think in the long run it will pay for itself many times over because so. it gives you the freedom to make changes a bit more gung-ho without worrying about breaking stuff or you know yep. say you want to move from vmware to proxmox or you want to go on to bare metal or whatever you don't have to worry about well hmm what did i install for this particular version of you know the the hypervisor that i was using what was the drivers that were needed um it's just all there it's in the it's in the git repo in the history from that commit a few months ago and another benefit of this too, um, so even if you do feel like you're spending a lot of time on this, um, that's not a problem in and of itself, because think of it this way, at my day job, and I, I think this is kind of like the dream for a lot of people in home lab, where you, 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 if you work in IT already, 
your boss comes to you and says, hey, can you work on Ansible or whatever it is and, and tell us about it and maybe help implement this. And that's something you've already been doing in your home lab for a long time. So that really me. pays off. That's like, yes, I can help you with that. Absolutely. Exactly what happened to me. Yeah, I was messing about with Docker and Ansible at home, ended mm -hmm. up applying for a DevOps job. And that was my career. That feeling is amazing. It's like it validates everything that you've been studying, um, that they just happen to go that direction. Um, and I've had that happen twice, two different companies. I've been using Ansible for a long time. Both just so happened to go toward Ansible. And since that, and we'll talk about what Ansible is later on. Um, but I think that's kind of what we hope happens if we work in IT, or even if we don't work in IT, maybe we want to. And these are things we can add to our resume. We've legitimately been working on Ansible if we have. So there's all kinds of other benefits beyond the amount of time, like you mentioned, uh, that could pay off, especially if you're looking for a certification or depending if it maps to your career goals or not. So um, that being said, it's um, I think my main point on my side, at least, is it's it's a personal thing. I agree with everything Alex has mentioned. I think that there's a you strive to do the right thing, to document, to automate, make it e easier on yourself, not have to remember how you did the thing. You, you switch to DigitalOcean or from DigitalOcean to Linode or vice versa or whatever you're doing, um, or you're going from Proxmox to VMware. Um, you don't have to worry about, well, how did I do the thing? Hmm, I don't remember. That was six months ago. Um, that could be really frustrating. So I actually open source all of my automation code. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Ansible in particular. Uh, I use Terraform a little bit as well. So um, for those that don't know, I mean, uh, it's hard to know quite what the audience do and don't know in advance. But Ansible is my personal favorite uh, config management tool. So I, I use that because it runs over SSH. So I can connect to every server remotely in a push model. So that, what that means is I have a central uh, system. It could be my laptop, it could be a, a VPS, it could be you know any system running Linux uh, or a MacBook. So any anything that runs a Unix type terminal, right? And that runs SSH. I can connect to a remote system. And from there, I can basically push my configuration out over SSH. Now, there are some other tools in this space puppet is another notable one yep. uh, salt as well um is another one puppet works in a slightly different way that works in a pull model so you have a bunch of remote servers that uh run an agent and every i think 15 minutes by default they connect into a central puppet master gotta love mm -hmm. the name of that <laughs> yeah yep uh, and say hey has anything changed in the last 15 minutes and if it has they apply the delta and they bring themselves back up to what the desired state should be. Mm -hmm. That's the primary difference between Ansible and Puppet. Now, I mentioned Terraform as well. Um, now, this one is an infrastructure tool. So I use Terraform primarily to actually create VMs or VPS instances, um, mm -hmm. both on-prem. So I, I use it to automate stuff against Proxmox and VMware in my house. But I also use it to uh, automate stuff against Linode, and DigitalOcean, uh, and many other cloud providers like AWS and all the big guys as well. Um, and these these two tools, Terraform and Ansible, work incredibly well together because yes, they do. You end up having a logical delineation between the creation of the infrastructure, so that in can include stuff like firewalls, the VMs themselves, any networking that goes around those systems, any disks you want to provision for them. And then once you get to the point where the VMs and, and all the other infrastructure has actually been created, I can then switch to Ansible and say, hey, right, go and bring these into the desired state that I'm looking for. That's exactly right. That's ex that's how I use Terraform and how I recommend other in Ansible in combination as well. They do work very well together. Like I, I've had someone ask me, you know, when when does Terraform end and Ansible begin? And I said pretty much the same thing you just said. I, I basically said, well, let's use Terraform to make things exist and then Ansible to take things that do exist and bring them up to spec. And also, if uh, we want to make changes globally rather than, you know, if we have 500 servers, hit them all one at a time, uh, that takes a long time. But to be able to bring them all to a desired state and change the state, bring them to the state at any one time. Um, and personally, I've used uh, Puppet, Chef, and Ansible. 
And then when I settled on Ansible, for me personally, there like at that point, nothing else existed. Like I just felt like this resonates with me. This is how I think it should be. And this is great. It's easy to learn. And I also felt, I don't know if you've had this experience, Alex. Um, I felt like Ansible keeps up better with what's in the industry. Like if um, there's a change in apt, for example, that their modules are pretty quick to, to accommodate that. When a new distribution is forked from another distro, I've, I've literally seen Ansible, um, you know, pretty much include that right from the get-go. And the one time it didn't, can't remember what distro it is. I put the pull, pull request in myself when they didn't support a uh, distribution that uh, just hit the scene. And I was expecting to have to go through this rigid set of requirements. We're like, okay, it's merged. I'm like, oh, wow, cool. Um, so yeah, I could sing praises for Ansible. I think it's an amazing thing. And, and just like Alex said, that's exactly what it is. It connects via SSH. That means you don't have to run an agent. Um, just as an example, my day job before I started with Ansible, they used Chef. And I had a client call me up very upset. They're like, my server's hitting 100% CPU every hour. Um, and I'm like, and he's like, why is this? And I'm like, oh, that's just Chef running. Um, now, you could argue the Chef implementation wasn't done very well, but it spiked the CPU. There's an agent running. It's just, just using CPU cycles to check through everything. And Ansible is just more lightweight by comparison. In some environments, you need that for compliance, though. Yeah. Well, you could do the same with Ansible. The way I use Ansible is different. Um, maybe we could talk about that later on, either in a dedicated episode or in this one. Um, I kind of use a hybrid approach with uh, my Ansible. And that's one thing about Ansible. There's a generally agreed upon way to use it, but there's nothing stopping you from bending a little things here to make it work more flexible for you. And I really love that flexibility about it. Um, Obviously, there's some best practices you need to follow, and going against those best practices, you could basically correct it in the forums, politely so. They've generally been pretty good. Um, so generally speaking, whether you, you're using Puppet, Chef, or Ansible, like Alex said, it's just getting everything up to a certain point. You define the end result, and then the tool gets your server to that end result. You manage a lot of servers, Tom. What do you, what do, you do for this kind of stuff? I'm partial to Ansible. The uh, it's always it's just the simplicity of it, agentless, and sometimes I'm not even needing anything much. Like I just need some stats from a server, so you know, queue it up. I just need to know the information from these servers. Give it all back to me, so it's something parsable. Um, I've also used it when I do some of the load testing. If we got to load test a uh, server for IOPS, I can spin up several different VMs and use Ansible to try to kick off simultaneous loads from a series of VMs focused on one particular storage target uh, so I can get that kind of overall, you know, can this handle when it hits production, uh, the type of IOPS I need out of it. Ansible has always been like that easy tool, no agents, no nothing, just throw a couple of VMs, throw some SSH keys at it, and uh, it, you know, away you go. Um, it's it's just the simplicity of it, I, I would say, is what I like. As long I as agree. you've got Python on the remote system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's easy enough, though. <laughs> and another element of um, Ansible is uh, Ansible Tower, a.k.a. AWX. AWX being the open source version, you could pay for Ansible Tower. I, I don't use um, AWX a lot, but I do have it. I do use it. Um, I have various playbooks, as they're called in Ansible, that are on my AWX server. Um, sometimes it's cool just to um, have a template, as they're called and run that template, you get the results right in your browser, which is pretty cool. Completely optional, not required. It's just one of those things that's pretty cool to set up if someone wants a project to work on. Um, I personally like it. I don't use it every day. It's not like a, a big part of my workflow, but it's just something to look at if you are the type of person that likes to have the uh, visual component of Ansible, which again, isn't required. Home labbing, I prefer to just do things on the command line. Too, However, yeah. um, when you're in a team <clears throat> at work and you've got a bunch of other people doing stuff, uh, you know, it's worth uh, something like Tower is well worth it because you can do mm -hmm. role-based access control. Say, you know, this person can run this specific task, but also it bridges the gap between Ansible and Puppet. So you can have scheduled tasks, for example, as part of Tower and say, run this task every 15 minutes to make sure that these packages are at this specific version for example, or some config files match what they should. Um, 
the other thing is is that uh, AWX is the it has a relationship to um, Tower, a bit like OKD has a relationship to OpenShift. So mm -hmm. it's the upstream open source version of Tower. Oh, I see. Morgan's just said that in the chat as well. <laughs> Thanks, yep. Morgan. Yep. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I, I definitely agree. And I've, I've um, even at my day job, it's pretty much the same. Um, we have uh, some individuals who are, you know, just starting out. They want to help out maybe take a ticket off the queue and it's something simple. Uh, maybe there's an approval to just update packages on the server, or just go to, go to AWX, log in, run the script. But then, you know, more advanced people. I love the command line. That's what I prefer. I could do the same thing from the command line. I could run the same playbook. I don't need to even open a web, a web browser. I can just fire it up uh, and it works. So um, definitely something to at least know exists depending on, I mean, will it fit your use case really depends on what you are looking for. But um Definitely a lot of um, interesting, interest, blah, excuse me. interesting things about Ansible, one of my favorites. And I really love how well, uh, just like you mentioned, it fits with Terraform, how it can fit in with other utilities. Um, I think it was last week, I created a cloud init config that as soon as I restored a Raspberry Pi SD card image that I had with the cloud init config on there, it automatically provisioned via Ansible. I didn't even do anything but restore the SD card and powered on, done, walk away. And I got a notice on my phone because you know you could even hook Ansible into notification services. So you could get a notification on your phone if you really want to go that far. Um, I do because why not? Then I get a notification, oh, the Raspberry Pi uh, provision is all set. I can log into the server. And sure enough, everything was uh, set up and ready to go. So it's easy to learn, but nearly endless with the possibilities that you can uh, you know, build into it. If you could think of it, it, it's probably possible. I haven't yet run into anything I wasn't able to do in Ansible. So highly recommended. And you can start really simple of just having it return something to you or just kicking off something simple, you know, uh, some install or an apt get update. Maybe, you know, one of the easiest ones to do, you have a bunch of servers to update that you want to update manually instead of just using, you know, unattended updates. You could actually put a playbook together, put your service in there and it's like, all right, this is the update command. And what does it return after it kicks off, you know, apt get update or yum upgrade and start looking through it. It's like some of the most basic commands you can start sending to it, see how they return and you keep building it from there. And the nice thing is, you know, even like Alex said, so many people put their playbooks, put all of the things they do out there on GitHub, you can often find those and, you know, start reverse engineering how they work and take and cut the snip and piece them together. So you can build a tool or a script or a playbook that builds what you want to build. Uh, it's a pretty well-documented system out there. That's probably another plus for Ansible. Um, I found lots of answers on Stack Exchange and GitHub. <laughs> That's <laughs> it, it, it does help. The other portion of Ansible that absolutely rocks is a thing called Ansible Galaxy. Now, this is a way to import work that other people have done, essentially. So if you want to do something like set up a Samba server or set up a bunch of users or something fairly standard like that, you can pretty much guarantee there's going to be a role available on Ansible Galaxy what you would do then is you would put in your playbook, execute this role against this group of servers, and then you would provide a bunch of variables that would override the default variables in that Galaxy role to customize, say, the username that you're using or the name of your Samba share or the mount point for it or something like that. And it just means you can take these reusable building blocks of code. You know, Jeff Geerling is probably the ninja master of Ansible on the internet, and he's written... Yes, he hundreds of these damn things upon uh, Ansible Galaxy. We actually had him on the self-hosted podcast a couple of episodes ago, and uh, he's yep. turning into the Raspberry, Raspberry Pi Ninja now as well. So <laughs> He literally submits pull requests, as I understand it. I'm pretty sure I saw his name in the source code when, you know, talking about the source code, when you go into, you know, the, the Git repository for Ansible, you'll see his name talking to the developers there. He's extremely active in this space. Mm-hmm. Definitely a lot of respect for him. And he does really awesome YouTube videos. Highly recommend that uh, everyone checks them out if they haven't already done so. So any other thoughts about Ansible? Because I think we uh, we totally uh, I think we covered most of it. I feel yeah. like I could be it's forgetting something. to learn a lifetime to master. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's it for sure. Now, Terraform, um, we could have even started with this one, actually. 
making things exist. Yes, you can use it to make changes later. Um, some, you know, we, I won't get into should you or shouldn't you, but it is great for, you know, making things exist. And it works with different providers, which is how Terraform, it, how that works. So there's a provider for it, Linode, DigitalOcean, AWS, Google Cloud, Proxmox, you know, your local hypervisor technologies are a, cap a capability of that too. You tell it which provider you want to use. So if you want to build it on AWS or you want to build it on VMware, and that provider knows how to work with that kind of thing. And you build the config files, basically, the uh, scripts, and then there's a plan and an apply. The plan tells you um, what it would do if it was going to run or if you did actually run it. And then there's a an apply you run that tells it to actually do the thing. So you can actually run a plan and it'll tell you what it wants to do. But you watch because you know if it's going to delete your instance, maybe you don't want to hit that apply and, and allow it to do that. Maybe you, you wrote something wrong or something like that, but you get that flexibility. Maybe you should be architecting your systems in such a way that you don't care if you accidentally delete something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's, that's the ultimate goal for sure. Um, absolutely. But it just gives you that visibility. It tells you what it, what, it, what it's going to do. And then you, as the owner of the infrastructure, just make that decision. Yes, I agree. But if you did type something wrong or there's a typo, it'll tell you. It doesn't catch all um, errors or syntax errors most, but every now and then it could fail for other reasons. But you define the beginning state, it creates the instances for you, and you can even tell it to launch Ansible the first time. So that way everything um, off of one, running one Terraform script will just yeah, make things exist. It gets messy when you're trying to do that. Um, so I wrote a blog post for OpenShift.com a few months ago mm -hmm. um, on pretty much entirely deploying an OpenShift Kubernetes cluster with nothing but Terraform. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very powerful tool, and you can do all sorts of similar constructs to what you can in Ansible. You know, you can template things, you can iterate over things. It's basically a programming language. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a bunch of IP addresses, for example, you want to inject into some static IP configurations, you can provide that as a dictionary item and then have the code iterate over that dictionary and insert those IP addresses one by one into various VMs and stuff like that very very powerful tool um and so when i think about automation i i think about the sort of the more mundane tasks like bootstrapping a server and stuff like that for my home lab but i also think about how that's going to translate onto massively distributed systems like kubernetes clusters and things like that there's no way i'm going to go around and update the packages for example on 20 vms all at once it's that's just madness and a waste of time these days Right. But I just want to run one automation command and have that do everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a great goal. it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I never getting an error like it worked last week. What did I do wrong? But but like you mentioned earlier in the in the podcast, you know, because you wrote it and it's self-documenting and all this uh, state defining that you do just just makes it that much easier if you have to redo something later. And um, anyone looking at it, if you did it right, we'll be able to see not only from the documentation that you write, which I hope everyone writes documentation, and they'll at least see from the code um, how everything Okay, is. so documentation, right? Yeah, we got to talk about that. The too. code is the documentation, isn't it? Yes. I think so that's Why do I need to write more? Like, if you, if you are an infrastructure <laughs> engineer, you should be able to read my code and be like, okay, that's what that does. Cool. Move on, right? Yeah, well, I think there, there's truth to that. I think there could be use cases for documentation. Um, there could the, be the use basics. Cases for, here's, yeah, how the you, basics. here's how you consume the repo. Here's how you set it up. Sure. Okay, fine. But the more complicated stuff, that's in the code. I don't need to. I don't need to explain it twice, do oh, I? God, and then no. if I do, oh, you definitely don't want to. Yeah, if I write right. that down, I've then got to update it in two places. Yeah, you don't definitely don't want to write books. And you don't want to be redundant. You don't want to write like install these packages create this database and these uh, permissions, if the Terraform or the Ansible or whatever you're using, it, uh, if it does all that for you, then yeah, you definitely don't want to write like, you know, set, install MySQL and uh, create database app name or whatever. But I think there, there's definitely a use case for both. And it also depends on the individual as well. But um, I'm a big fan of documentation. There's just some things 
I document, and maybe you could argue this isn't even home lab related. Uh, sometimes when I learn certain commands or like certain syntax um, or certain arguments that I like that I just want to retain, um, if, I'll make it a bash alias when I can. Sometimes um, I'll write a, my, myself a little note. I know on um, self-hosted, I think you guys talked about hedge talk, um, I, or unless you guys were talking about a different solution. Uh, it seems like there, there's like a lot of competition in that space for documentation. I like just using them with text files personally, but um, I understand that's not like what the cool kids are probably doing. I wouldn't know what the cool kids are doing because uh, <laughs> I'm not one of those. <laughs> well, I think we're all cool in our own way, but, um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately if you're doc, I agree if you're documenting things that you're doing in the code, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for sure. So definitely draw a line from what you are going to document and what's redundant. Yeah, have you know, I do get excited when I see documentation in the code. It's like well commented and things like that. I got a mix I've worked with, and I, I think you may have too as well, uh, Phil, who works over for the Linux Foundation. Um, he's always been doing it right. I've always seen nice comments on the code he's always put together. <laughs> it's so appreciated. Poster person for doing it right. It's like twice I've contacted him and, you know, with a, a personal problem on my own servers and it's resulted in him writing a pull request. That yeah. same session, that same meeting. It, it's great. Um, it's like a superpower. <laughs> it's not, but um, it's definitely great if you can. Um, so basically there's some other concepts that are around automation and configuration management that we could probably argue we want to try to minimize if we can. One example of that um, is VM templates, which can be a good thing, but then probably unnecessary if you're using Terraform the correct way and configuration management. But they exist and multiple different um, you know, platforms allow you to create them. Now, sometimes it might be a good use case to have like the, like one thing that allows it to bootstrap or maybe um, something that allows it to hook into your system better. But I would probably argue VM templates. Mm, I mean, if you're if you're relying on those too much, then I think that kind of means you're not doing configuration management right. What would you say, Alex? I like a VM template to have a few basic things in it. For example, mm -hmm. maybe a, a convenient SSH key pre-baked in, mm -hmm. some basic packages, for example, Python, so that Ansible will just work without me having to futz every time. Right. Uh, with with Red Hat, maybe it could be subscribed if it's a home lab. But if it's in a, an enterprise situation, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to do um, subscription uh, based on the role of the server. Anyway, have you come across a tool called Packer? This thing, uh, I built, love it. But yeah, okay, cool. It's a HashiCorp yep. thing. So maybe how did I thank you as... so much? I, I'm so glad we didn't forget that. I would have hated myself if we didn't talk about that today. Yeah, I think the most important thing really is that you build templates regularly and that, you know, something like Packer, for those that don't know, essentially you provide a recipe to this thing and say, go build me a template and it, it goes away and it builds it and with a bunch of different rules and, and things like that. And before uh, Docker was really quite prevalent on the scene, which we talked about last episode, mm -hmm. Packer seemed to be the answer you know, coupled with Vagrant and stuff like that, you were able yeah. to build development environments that were fully encapsulated and deploy these things from a template in, in no time at all. And that just seemed like the obvious thing to do. But with, with containers, that kind of reduced the use case, in my opinion, for that kind of thing a little bit. It has, yeah. I think you you, you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned, um, I, I think you mentioned SSH keys. And since Ansible uses that, it's so much easier for Ansible to hit the um, you know new VM if that SSH key it's using is already there. Then you don't have to, you know, if you want to create a different user for Ansible to run under, you can, or the key or whatever it is you do to make your configuration management solution work. That's just one less thing to do. I, I mean, I think the issue comes when you see people that are building an empty or, or a template that has everything like the database with the schema and the application and the applications config files and the and the packages and then they like update the template every week um, to do that effectively doing the same thing you would use Terraform and configuration management for so I feel like I, I agree if it's a good starting point that's fine but I've, I've seen people run into the trap of making the uh, template everything and that 
could be a waste of your time, especially when you can have like version control with your configuration management, your Terraform, and, and even Packer in the chain. And Packer, for those that haven't heard of it, allow you to create those templates and images. And uh, I use, I've used it with um, Proxmox and AWS personally. So with AWS, you would actually see the AMI, um, the Amazon machine image, as, as they call it, show up there after it runs. So now you could create VMs with that image. Same with Proxmox, it'll, you'll see a template for your VMs there. You write the uh, script to define, you know, how it's going, how you want that image to look like or that template to look like. And then from that point forward, you could use that template as the uh, starting point for future VMs that you create. And it works with, it, personally speaking, it worked, it's worked with everything I've, I've tried or thought I might be interested in, like Google Cloud, AWS, as I mentioned, uh, AWS already, um, Proxmox, uh, many more. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure XCPNG, don't quote me on that. Um, but I was looking up the various platforms that it supports, and it knows how to build templates with those platforms or on those platforms. So it's like you learn one tool of Packer, create your templates with Terraform, the different providers, like we mentioned earlier, allow it to work with different platforms. So you can have one tool for each purpose, and Ansible works with pretty much everything. And then you could just use them for whatever platforms you're using. I wanted to address, uh, and I'm going to butcher the name, I'm sorry, uh, Parithosh? I hope I got that right. Hmm. Uh, who asks, couldn't you just use cloud in it to set up the SSH keys? Uh, yes, you definitely could, so long as the OS that you're provisioning supports it, which is not all of them. Which ones don't? Because um, uh, I know just so it so happens that the one or two I tried work just fine, but obviously that's that's not really a good uh, example. Do you have any in mind? or? Um... Well, it depends if you're installing from an ISO. Uh, so, you know, some, you know, Ubuntu desktop, for example, probably would support it, but you'd need to pass it in the correct way. And if you're building from a, an ISO directly, that's it's not easily done. Um, it really depends on how you're provisioning these these systems. If we're doing it through automation, it's very easy. But if you're doing it through click, click, click in a UI, you've got to paste things in the correct field and all that kind of stuff. Right. So it's just so not... It's not a standard thing across different distros. So like Ubuntu does it differently to Fedora, to Arch, yeah. to Red Hat, you know, so. I felt, because um, I actually worked a lot with it um, a week ago, I kind of felt like the documentation just was nowhere near as good as it is with Terraform, Ansible, and the others. Um, I mean, there is documentation. There's just not as much. So I feel like, at least when I was working with it, you're more likely to run into a situation where you're Googling how to do a particular thing, you may or may not find a good lead on how to do that thing. Um, in my case, I was just playing around with it. I'm like, okay, well, Raspberry Pi, uh, the Ubuntu server Raspberry Pi image has that built in. So I figured I'm gonna customize the cloud in it. And then I looked up in the documentation how to change the default user from Ubuntu to my name. I did, as a proof of concept, I wanted to do that. And I found it and I was able to change that default user name. I found the syntax for it and totally locks the image. You can't log in. I, I fought with it for like probably over an hour and I know I did it right. Um, the user was created. I could pop the SD card in, see that Etsy password was updated um, with the hash I provided. I never really figured out why I couldn't use it, but I did eventually find a workaround it was a little challenging. Um, I think depending on your distro, like Alex mentioned, you might have an easy time, um, a bad time. Um, with me, though, I've noticed that, yes, you could do it with the ISO. But from what I've seen so far, even if it doesn't include it by default, you can install the package for it. And then usually the distro maintainers, if they do provide that package, will have a default uh, cloud in it config for their distro. And then you could grab that, customize it, then you can essentially you uh, convert that installation into a template and then the next time it runs it or, or boots up it's going to um you know make that the case but again don't over architect cloud in it there's a you know there's some things you could do with that but then you run into a challenge if you try to make that everything to everything it might just uh start working against you so um ssh keys absolutely a good use case for it but like alex mentioned you know check your distro the capabilities, make sure the documentation is there for the things you want to use it for, and then choose accordingly. And All right. So um, any thoughts on the whole template things or even cloud in it for that matter? Um, and actually, Tom, how do you use um, templates like for your use case? I, I meant to ask you that. Yeah. So and I did look up uh, 
Packer Builder Zen Server. The code's a little old. Uh, I imagine maybe it still works because uh, Zen Server, uh, the same API stuff works from forever ago. Uh, they carried everything forward and added features. Um, a lot of my stuff is still VM templates because it's just an easier way to go. Um, the I, I usually just keep a couple maintained running ones. And then I, because it's so easy to fork them, uh, you just create clones of them and it instantly deploy as many as I want because you can do this inside of uh, XCPNG through Zen Orchestra. It's nice. It's just so easy from a web management standpoint. If I need five of Ubuntu's, I can just go grab the Ubuntu. It's already up to date and duplicate five of them. And kind of like Alex said, it saves me the trouble of loading Python and all, you know, all the things if I wanted to use Ansible against them. It has everything in them already. So I'm using a little bit different for my lab. It's probably not something I'd want to use for customers. The automation is a better way to do that for my lab, for simplicity and the fact that I don't use automation enough uh, from my day-to-day -day use cases. This is why I usually still do it that way. That's also why, you know, I'm still learning in, from you guys as well about better ways to do this, just like everybody else here. <laughs> so uh, something you said kind of reminded me of a reason why a lot of people use Cloudinit. Um, and there's other ways of doing this. You don't need Cloudinit mm -hmm. for anything, let alone what I'm about to mention. But um, one issue that comes is, um, especially with beginners, is the SSH host key issue where, um, let's say you, you create 10 VMs and you create it off of one template, that template contains the same SSH host key. Yes. Then every single time you SSH into a machine, it's going to basically say um, or give you errors because it's, it's tracking like um, the known hosts and the hash associated with that. They're all going to have the same. And then it's going to really confuse your SSH client. Now, uh, Cloudinit will wipe your SSH host keys and regen them on new instances, but that's not the only challenge. Specific to Ubuntu, and I think other distros might do this, I don't know wh which ones do and which ones don't, and this really drove me nuts. Um, well, basically what happened was, um, I had the SSH host key thing figured out completely, every machine got a different one, but um, each machine was fighting over the same IP address, even though the MAC address for the NIC was different on each. So generally how it's gonna work is a VM, is, if, if it's exposed to a um, DHCP server, it's going to present its MAC address. I need an IP, it gets an IP, then another server with a different MAC address, and I made sure this asks for an IP, it gets a different IP. But despite them having different MAC addresses, they all got the same IP all the time. And what I realized was that with Ubuntu, there's a Etsy uh, machine ID file, machine hyphen ID that has a, um, I don't know if it's a hash, it has content in there, and that's what it presents to the DHCP server instead of the MAC address. So if your image, um, all the servers have the same machine ID, and I think even Debian might be going this direction if they haven't already, then if you don't you know, fix that, you're going to have an issue where now the uh, servers are fighting over the same IP address. And what it'll be, you know, you SSH into one, you start working on it, it drops. What, what happened? It says a, a connection reset because now it's trying to hit a different VM. Um, and Cloudinit will actually fix those things. And you can fix it yourself by just simply um, truncating the machine ID file by the zeroing it out, just empty it out. Um, and it matters if it's absent versus empty. I found in my testing, believe me, a lot of um, non-politically correct words were spoken out of my mouth when I was fighting this issue. And I eventually found it out. I wrote a blog post about it. Um, so there's going to be things like that, that in an image or template you want to make sure are accounted for. And Cloudinit, even if you only use it for the SSH host keys and the machine ID, and that's all you do, that's that's totally fine. Um, what's in interesting is that with Raspberry Pi OS, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they don't actually use Cloudinit. So um, but how they get around the, the uh, host key problem, which is kind of funny when you look at the um, systemd unit for this, it literally looks like someone hated Cloudinit and wanted to avoid it because the systemd unit literally RMs all the host keys out of Etsy SSH. It runs the dpkg reconfigure open SSH command to regen the host keys, and then it disables itself. Um, so you enable the service next time it boots, it does those few things and it disables itself. So they went out of their way to avoid uh, cloud in it. But you could do things like that if you wanna get around the problem. Yeah. It's interesting that they do it that way. We I, When we were talking about that, when we were putting the show notes yeah. together, we're like, hey, really? That's that's okay. That sounds like something someone very basic would do. And we don't think of the Raspberry Pi as uh, built by amateurs, but they have the reasons. Yeah. 
they had their reasons. And part of the reason could have been documentation. Maybe they, they got, maybe when they wrote it initially, there wasn't documentation for what they were trying to do. Um, they should just simply be able to use the Debian upstream uh, cloud init config to do that. They really shouldn't have to re-architect anything. But yeah, you're right. It is what it is. Um, I chuckled when I saw it. Uh, for anyone running Raspberry Pi OS, if you go into um, Etsy systemd system, you should see a service file there, a unit file called uh, something like reset host keys dot service or something similar to that. And then just, um, you know, cat out the contents of it and um, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But those are some things you might want to use CloudInit for um, if uh, that's something that you experience with your VM. So I just want to get that out there. If you run into an issue where all of your VMs are fighting over the same IP, you have no idea why, they have different MAC addresses, it's Etsy machine ID that, that you should take a look at. It's probably the same on each one. So you'll run into issues like that when you uh, create templates every now and then. Which is why I should switch to automation right. <laughs> instead of just cloning all my VMs. <laughs> in, in one thing about automation, depending on the platform, I, I know there's not going to be very many people using AWS, um, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong in our, in our, our listening audience. Um, but we actually were able to get it to a point where there, there didn't need to be any um, template or image because it has something called user data where you can just, um, with a launch config right there in AWS, you could just put something there and add the SSH key via um, the built-in SSH key service there with AWS. And you could pretty much just have a vanilla Ubuntu Debian or whatever instance you're using, nothing, no template, no AMI, nothing. And then it just launches the configuration management to, to do pretty much everything. It is possible, probably, at a too high of a level for the average average home lab person because they might not be using a platform that um, exposes capability like that. Probably we'll have to do a uh, template. Now, another thing about this that I think we've kind of wanted to talk about or, or proposed to talk about in our notes here, um, the idea where the server is basically completely unimportant. The data obviously is what matters. The app is what matters. Um, but if you're in a situation where you're thinking, man, if this server goes down, that'd be horrible. I have to do all these different things. Um, imagine a world where you could delete the server right now and just spin up a new one and nothing's different. For example, you could have a database that's outside of the VM. Maybe it's mounting via AutoFS or some other service, um, maybe some central storage. The VM, the container, well, containers are pretty much stateless anyway. Um, you don't you don't really care about that because everything of importance is in a central place. And if you're like Tom and I using uh, TrueNAS, you have uh, snapshots and you could easily roll those back, if, especially if you have the configuration in snapshots or something like that, um, just basically being mounted. That's an option. There's a lot of interest, especially in my forums. I, I've been asked uh, how to make, uh, well, how to create this basically, have a central storage and have uh, what's important there. Obviously it becomes a single point of failure if that one storage goes. So you really have to think about um, the, the single point of failure that that can create, but um, it's just definitely something to talk about. And I know Tom, you use uh, TrueNAS probably way more than I do because you make videos about it, but I think you and I probably have the same use style. Yeah, it's it's another spot where you can create some levels of automation, and that's expanding rapidly. One of the things that TrueNAS has done is allow API access to control the system, and this is going to expand out how you can handle your storage, how you can tie this into uh, some of your other tools like uh, Kubernetes, I believe. You can tie that into it so you can roll back the snapshots from that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you covered that in some of your Kubernetes things you're working on or not. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about it, but I haven't. I, yeah, I don't it's not something I've tested, but it's some of the yep. expandability they're getting in there. It's it's really nice to see, and, and even uh, Terraform working with XCPNG, all these different tools are building so you can you know, build out your VMs, build out your storage servers, and have it all tied together very tightly uh, so you don't just replicate a VM like Tom's been doing. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, so you mentioned Kubernetes and containers. One of the things I, uh, many millions of things I love about LinuxServer.io um, is that it's pretty logical, slash config. That's according to the documentation, and, and it's, it's been that way every time I've used it. The When you have a container, when you get an image from linuxserver.io and you create a container with that image, then it, your data is in slash config. So if you mount slash config to a central resource, and I tried this with uh, TrueNAS, I was using the lounge and IRC um, bouncer that you can basically run in a browser. And I had the config, the slash config, 
folder mounted to a true NAS data store and that had snapshots and you know, it was empty. I spun up the container and sure enough, um, all the config files just ended up there on TrueNAS. And then I deleted the container, I respawned it again, and it was exactly like nothing happened because all the config files are not in the container, they're in that uh, central place. Um, and, and Alex, I know you have uh, a lot of uh, Docker Compose Kung Fu going on, so you probably have, uh, I'm assuming, a, a better solution or maybe some kind of um, interesting solution around Docker Compose, if I remember correctly, with your services. Yeah, so in the uh, in my infrastructure repo, so github.com slash ironicbadger slash infra, uh, all of my stuff is open source if you want to go and dig around a bit more. Um, in there, I, I have I, I writ. <laughs> It's not a word. I wrote a role for Ansible, which takes in a Python dictionary of uh, parameters and spits out a Docker Compose file at the other end. So I basically plug in my traffic labels that I want, uh, the host paths that I want to bind mount my volumes to, the ports, all that kind of stuff. Um, and out the other end comes a fully functional Docker Compose file. Uh, that's really useful for a few reasons. Uh, the most important of which is secrets. So I have a bunch of keys that I don't want the internet to see, and yet my infrastructure repo is open to the world. So how do I handle that? Well, I put a bunch of stuff in something called Ansible Vault. Ansible mm -hmm. Vault will it will encrypt a YAML file uh, using AES two fifty six encryption, um, and at runtime, the Ansible controller, which is usually my laptop, will decrypt that file in real time extract the you know cloudflare api key for example or database password or whatever it might be and then inject that into the clear text file that lives on disk of the host that is a downside the docker compose file is clear text on the server i don't really know a good way around that except running some something like hashicorp vault which i'm not going to do at home so right um yeah that's that's how i manage my docker compose files but the data itself just lives on a ZFS, uh, what do you call it, volume? Yeah, data set. Volume data, or data set. set. Thank you. That's yeah. the word my brain had. Okay. Uh, I, I used data store. Which was in, <laughs> yeah, I said data store, which is incorrect terminology. Yeah, data set. So I have a data set per container. Um, and I have I use Jim Salter's Sanoid uh, script, which runs every hour, I think, by default. So I have a snapshot of the app data for each container. So this is so app data is separate from data data, if that makes sense. So the configuration yep. of the application is separate from, say, my movies and TV shows. Right, the movies and TV shows lives off ZFS. It lives on a MergerFS uh, array, for want of a better word. It's just a bunch of disks fused together, fused together in software. Um, PerfectMediaServer.com. If you want to know more about that. Um, but yeah, ZFS is how I do snapshots for application configuration. That's a brilliant way to use it. I also use Ansible Vault as well. Um, and I, I kind of run into the same thought process because you mentioned you don't know a better way to solve the clear text thing. Um, it's similar to me. Like I use Ansible Vault and I, I have the file that you could use like dash dash vault password file, I believe is the option in Ansible. You could point it to where that uh, text file is that contains your key. Um, but it. you absolutely do not want that key to be in your version control where everyone can view it because that just totally um, destroys the whole purpose of it because now everyone can decrypt that. And, it, you know, the Ansible knows in the Ansible config file, you, you can tell where to find this. Um, actually, I just use a command line argument. And um, you have to be either root or a very specific user to actually view the file on the system. And then I, I could make the argument, if you got that far um, into my server, okay, it's already blown wide open if, if you're able to, to get into that because it's not in reach of any web server. It's not exposed to the internet um, or anything like that. It, it's just, uh, you know, readable only by the users that need to be able to read it. And um, if, if you're able to, to get that far and you, you tell me what my own password is, well, you know what? Uh, pat on the back. You got you uh, won the prize you got in there. Um, the problem was before that. You shouldn't have been able well, to Well, let's be fair. Far. People are just going to go after pipelines and not Jay's home server. So Right. Well, I mean, now that I mentioned it, I'm sure there's probably a bunch of people trying. So, you know, um, and if I, if I get owned, I guess I, I only have myself to blame for that. But um, Ansible Vault is, is pretty, pretty good uh, for those kinds of things. I haven't used the 
HashiCorp vault. I remember looking at it and just looking at it cross-eyed. I'm like, what? How does this work? Um, could have been my ADD, but I plan on actually looking at it again and just kind of, you know, seeing. I deployed it in oh. uh, a previous job and it's uh, it's a beast. It's very, very complicated to deploy or certainly was four or five years ago. Um, wow. But does work very, very well. It's incredibly expensive at the enterprise level, though. Yeah, I, I, I think it was like, Two years ago when I looked at it, I had the same opinion. So unless something has like drastically changed recently, it's probably the same thing again still today. So, um, yeah. So I know we didn't really talk about, um, I mean, we did talk about the differences between uh, Ansible and, and uh, Puppet. And, and Chef is pretty much the, the same problem there. I think that, you know, the fact that all of us are using Ansible, I mean, I could talk a little bit more about the differences, but I think we, we pretty much covered that too, because um, it's agentless, like was mentioned earlier, um, Chef is pretty much the, the, the same pros and cons as Puppet for the most part. Um, I have to just personally make that recommendation for Ansible for anyone looking for that. I don't think um, anyone will disagree with me on that. But um, then again, I mean, if your company is sold on Puppet or Chef and that's already the direction that they're going, I mean, it is what it is. And I haven't used Salt personally, so I can't really speak about that. Jeff, I would say that uh, probably, I don't know, this AC unit controller has better security than the pipeline people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we haven't heard anything good come out of that yet. So weren't they running Windows XP, I had. I probably I've, I'm trying to sort fact from fiction out because there's a lot going on around. If, if they were running XP, they deserve it. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that would not be a good day to, to expose. A, well, I mean, it wouldn't be very hard to expose a Windows XP machine if we knew of one. But yeah, that's not good at all. So are there any other thoughts about configuration management, automation and the like? Because um, unless I'm missing something obvious, I think we may have covered everything that we set out to talk about. Yeah, I think we we got most of it out there, and it's one of those things like we can't possibly cover all of it. It's it's a lot of it comes down to you know what do you use um, the Salt Stack one, and I seen a couple people mention it. We didn't dive into it. I know they've had a lot of security problems and had a lot of security updates to it. I'm not saying that's bad as a product. It may be because of the popularity of it. People found problems with it. Uh, the bigger problem. Uh, most of the time was the fact that it was all publicly exposed and people never thought to tunnel any of that type of traffic that does your configuration management. Um, Cause even SSH, I mean, SSH is secure enough for the internet, but if you can secure it, if you can secure any of the transport layers of your uh, infrastructure, do that. It's just better that way. Hide it behind a VPN, make it, make them work for every inch they try to get into your network. Don't make it easy. Don't run Windows XP. So that's when it really comes down to a lot of these automation tools, because the one thing that really keep in mind, how we were talking about, you know, decrypting that YAML file on the fly and things like that is with all this power comes the power to massively scale out uh, destruction. And it's not unheard of for someone's server to get popped. And then they find out it's the base of the automation server where they can massively disrupt things. This, uh, yeah. The problems are scalable, very, very scalable. Something that always needs to be uh, really taken into consideration with these tools. I try to separate things when I can too. Like I have um, a completely different Ansible vault key for my retro pies that yes, I do use Ansible on my retro pies. I literally go all in on Ansible, but I didn't want the same vault key on like everything because then if they get that vault key, they could go to other repositories, other Ansible repositories of mine and, and unencrypt things there too. Um, so you, you do kind of want to maintain at least some separation there um, because if, yeah, you have multiple layers, but if you have one key to all the things, then the person wouldn't really have to walk through very many layers if they get that key. They, they expose pretty much everything from that level up. So, And especially, like I mentioned earlier, don't put your vault keys, passwords, um, SSH private keys, or anything that people shouldn't see in a public Git repository. Right. Like it's, it. there's, a funny, there's a funny anecdote wow. on my infrastructure repo. 99.9% .9 less leaked credentials. Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's what happened. I didn't have the right thing in my Git ignore file. And oops. <laughs> and I, I think I, I have done the same thing. Like in a in a panic, I literally deleted the repository 
And, you know, cause I have all the code on, on my systems. And then I just created a brand new one without that file. Um, yeah, there's ways you can actually purge something from the history, but I didn't even want to wait. I'm like, I'm like nuke it all, start over, not start over. I just did a initial git commit to the new repository with all the same stuff and went from there. Obviously I lost all my history. Well, it's the so, only way to do it because yeah. git is a database and it contains, even if you delete the file, it's still got the history there. That's the kind of the point, right? So, yep. Um, well, the reason why I say it that way because a, a friend of ours uh, actually gave me a solution. There's there's a tool that allegedly will go through and totally purge the history of a Git repository of that thing. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't of the opinion where like I wanted to trust it 100% because if there's like an edge case where exactly it did yeah. not delete it in one of the commits, I didn't want to risk it. So I didn't. And really let's face it, every GitHub repo is being scanned by bots every second anyway. So once it's in there, it's up there. You've got to change it as, as fast as you can because it's public knowledge at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. There's there's a lot of automation tools that are built. Um, the matter of fact, there's a couple of public ones. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but there's a couple of public ones. I think they've been shut down now because Git did not appreciate them. They scan the repositories for people's private keys, and then they list them on a website on like a scrolling page. You just can go there and get the latest keys as they as it finds them. <laughs> and entire companies have been hacked. And I, I hate to use the term hack in this regard. When um, an AWS key to a company's entire infrastructure was uploaded there in clear text for anyone. To, they just, you know, they have all the rights that that I am role has or the key that's, that it's attached to. And then it, they just own everything because uh, someone thought it'd be okay, or maybe they just didn't think about it and put it right there in the repository as a public repository. So just, just keep that in mind. I know most people listening to this probably, I know, I know it's pretty obvious, it, believe me, it's it's not obvious for quite a few people out there. So uh, yeah. definitely keep that in mind. So hide your keys. <laughs> we'll, just leave, we'll leave you with that because I think we've reached the end of it. We've reminded everyone to secure everything. So <laughs> hide, your, hide your password, hide your keys. They're hacking everybody around here. Okay. Yes, anyway. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that was our show for today. Yes. All the previous episodes you can find at the homelab.show. Uh, this one will be published within 24 hours. So uh, we'll have it on there. So if you want to listen to us again, and we'll have some show notes for some of the things we talked about in case you missed it in chat, that'll be posted back over on the Homelab Show. And uh, thanks, Tom Lawrence here and Jay LaCroix and Alex Kretschmar. All right. Take care, everyone.